0: For this morning, we are continuing in our series that we are calling Encounters with King Jesus. And as I've been saying every week that I have been up here, I've been been giving you the why for this series and our big why is this, that we are taking as part of this series a long and hard look at the person and the work of Christ so that you are able to better see the, the uniqueness and the majesty and the power and the beauty of King Jesus. Because your ability to see the beauty of Jesus is one of the primary keys to living a life filled with joy, a life lived in relationship with that king, a life lived in surrender to that king. And that's your ability to see Jesus as supremely beautiful, supremely better than all the other things that pull at your heart. Through this series, we've been taking our cues from this book written by Tim Keller, and it's an excellent resource as it always, always drives to the uniqueness and the beauty of Christ as the source of the kind of love that you are looking for at the core, at the depths of who you are. And this morning, as we continue in this series, we're going to see Jesus in what is probably one of the rawest the the most raw moments in all of scripture as as Jesus enters the Garden of Gethsemane, the evening that he is arrested. And after his arrest, his trial, his torture, his crucifixion. Before all of that, Jesus has this this conversation with with God the Father. And as Jesus prays in this this raw, soul-bearing honesty, that interaction that Jesus has with his Father gives us A startling clarity into Christ's heart, into what drove Jesus, into what is most important to Jesus, how he thought, what he was all about. And so this morning we are going to be in Matthew chapter 26, but before we begin to explore our scripture, let me give you some context and tie what we're about to see this morning into what we saw last week. So last Sunday, we talked about the importance of last words and how, how Jesus, in his last words prior to his, his crucifixion, Jesus keeps landing on this emphasis on the Holy Spirit. That emphasis in those last words came from an extended conversation that we see playing out in John chapters 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. And in that final conversation, some theologians would say that that's not a sit-down kind of conversation, but rather Jesus is is talking with his followers as as he is, is moving from the site of the Last Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then once they reach the Garden, once they reach Gethsemane, this scene unfolds, the scene captured for us in Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. Here's what we see there. It says, then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and he said, sit here while I'll go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, go ahead and sleep, have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. And at that point, Jesus is betrayed and arrested and so begins the events that lead up to Christ's crucifixion. So a couple of things to help us understand what we are seeing here. We've got parallel accounts of this same story taking place in in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. Luke tells us that that Jesus was in such agony during this time that that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood, which could mean that Jesus is sweating profusely or literally that he was sweating drops of blood. A condition that occurs under extreme trauma and extreme anguish and causes a person's capillaries to burst. And there's actually this mix of sweat and blood. And it's this trauma, it's it's this, this anguish of Jesus that stands out in this passage. Another thing to help us here, right? This reference to the cup. We see it a couple of times in this passage. It's in verse 39, it's in verse 42. The cup in this instance refers to the wrath of God being poured out in divine judgment against sin and against evil. And Jesus knows that this cup for him will entail the greatest suffering. See, we can't afford to miss this. See, Jesus has known that, that, that the events that are coming, these events that happen once he is, is betrayed. Jesus knows that these events are coming. Remember back to some of our prior conversations in this series, right? Christ's very first miracle at Cana. Jesus turns water into wine to give us the blueprint of exactly what he has come to do. And it's the work of substitution. In this very first miracle, Jesus makes a way for a family's need. There's this family and they are facing just this great shame, In this shame-based culture, for them to to run out of of wine at such a significant social event as a wedding, for them, it's unthinkable. And Jesus steps into this shame and covers their shame by by making a substitution. Jesus turns water into wine. And that miracle foreshadows all of Christ's ministry. Jesus covers our shame and our guilt by, by being our substitution and dying for our sins. At Christ's baptism, Jesus identifies with these people who are acknowledging their sin. He engages in this act of baptism that foreshadows his very real death and his very real resurrection. In the days leading up to what we just read in Matthew 26, Jesus is actively talking about his death. So Jesus knows that suffering, his death is coming. That does not surprise Jesus. But yet as he grows closer and closer to these events, I think that the full weight of of what Jesus is about to face, the growing horror of what is about to happen presses more and more and more on Jesus. Jesus. I think that you and I have a tendency to first and foremost think about the cross in terms of physical suffering. The root of the word that you see in in crucifixion is the same root that you see in the word excruciating. Flog with a whip that is woven with pieces of, of bone and metal to rip and tear. Ripping skin, tearing tissue, Exposing muscle and bone and nerves. A crown of thorns shoved into Christ's head. Spikes driven into his wrists, into his feet, hoisted up on a cross, battling asphyxiation. The emotional suffering at the injustice of the whole thing. Separation from friends and family. Yet for Jesus, there is is a spiritual dimension here that we have to see. As Jesus bears the weight of our sin, there is a spiritual dimension here that makes the physical and emotional suffering that much more horrific. The relationship that Jesus had with God the Father has been closer and tighter and more intimate than you can can even possibly imagine. Imagine. And that relationship between Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit, that relationship that had been enjoyed by Jesus, going back forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. ever. As Jesus moves closer to the cross, rather than experiencing God's closest presence with him for the first time in forever, Jesus meets silence instead of intimacy. Jesus meets absence instead of presence. This is what Jesus begins to experience, and this is, is his greatest source of anguish and distress. And it's, it's why he is crushed with a grief that feels like death even before his death. Jesus in the garden is getting a full picture of the of, of suffering beyond even our wildest imaginations, seeing the horror of the Father's absence, the horror of being utterly, absolutely alone, The horror of the brutality, the horror of the full weight of our sin. Jesus is getting the full picture in the garden of all of this, and still he chooses the cross. In Matthew 26, it is the dark of night. His friends are asleep. Christ could have run from the horror of all this, yet he chooses the cross. Jesus chooses surrender. Jesus chooses God's plan. Verse 39, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. In this act that is the greatest act of love that the world will ever know, Christ takes the penalty of our sin, the penalty of your sin, that sin placed on Jesus, and Christ pays the penalty for your sin. And he does that so you might experience forgiveness, so that you might experience the intimate relationship that he is losing in the garden, that you might experience intimate relationship with God, that you might experience freedom. Because of Jesus paying the penalty for your sin, you have forgiveness, but also because of Jesus, you have the benefit of his active obedience. See, in the garden, Jesus is choosing obedience. Jesus always chooses obedience. Jesus always chooses God's way. Jesus always makes the right choice. And so, at the cross, Jesus takes your sinful record and pays the penalty for that, and at the same time, Jesus gives you his record of active obedience. Jesus gives you his record of of perfect obedience. If you are a believer, Christ's perfect obedience is credited to you. So let me see if I can't explain this. When you were in school, or maybe you still are in school, as we're in back-to-school season. But in school, did you get in trouble if your grades were lousy? Can I see your hands? All right, a couple of us, right? So if you brought home Ds and Fs, that was bad news, right? That meant that you were in trouble. Were there consequences? Was there punishment coming your way because of those low grades? So let's see if this illustration helps. So at the cross, Jesus takes the report card that is rightfully yours. Jesus takes that report card with those D's and F's and bears the punishment for those bad grades. It's what we've been talking about up to this point this morning. But there's something else that is happening at the cross, something miraculous. Jesus doesn't just take your punishment. He hands you a new report card. Jesus hands you his report card. And because Jesus always chooses obedience, because Jesus always chooses God's way, because Jesus always makes the right choice, guess what his grades are? A plus, plus, plus in every subject. Jesus takes your D's and F's and he gives to you his straight A's. That's why Paul can write in places like in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin or to become sin itself so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That's why Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, You were his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Paul can say that you are right with God. You have straight A's. Paul can say that you are holy and blameless and without a single fault, even despite your screw-ups and your sin. Paul can say that you are holy and blameless without a single fault. You have straight A's because God is, when, when he's checking your report card, he's not looking at your D's and F's. He's looking at those straight A's that Jesus has given to you. When it comes to your forever report card, anybody in here feel like a straight A student? I don't either. But scripture is quite clear that regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you have done, regardless of what you were supposed to do but failed to do, you have straight A's. You are a straight A student in God's eyes. If you are a believer in Jesus, this is your position, this is your reality, this is your identity. And a life lived well is a life that is catching up to that identity. It is a life learning what it is to more and more live in your straight A plus reality. Is really a life of, of crazy freedom. That God is not looking at your report card, not looking at your D's and F's, not looking at your performance, but is looking at Christ's perfect performance for you. Let me give you this quote by Tim Keller. He writes, hell came down on Jesus and he would not let go of us. His love for us has already taken everything that the universe could throw at it, and it held fast. This is the love that you have been looking for all of your life. This is the only love that can't let you down. This is bomb-proof love. If the cup did not make him give up on us, nothing will. So Paul can say nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That's Romans 8. The Lord says, I will never leave you. Never will I forsake you. That's Hebrews 13. And So how do you respond to a love like that? How do you respond to a Savior who is crushed with grief to the point of death in the garden, could have turned away, but instead embraces death for you? You respond with gratitude, you respond with your life. You respond by giving him your everything. And one of the ways that we remember everything that Jesus has done for us is through the sacrament of communion. Earlier, as we were reading in Matthew chapter 26, a few verses prior to that, it says this. As they, Jesus, and his disciples were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, take this and eat it, for this is my body. And He took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. I'm gonna invite our worship team to come back and they are going to lead us in a couple of songs. The elements, the bread and the cup are here up at the front. We've got a table for each of our sections. If mobility is an issue, we've got tables in the back as well. And as our worship team plays in these next couple of moments, I invite you to to spend time in prayer with God. Searching your heart, searching out any unconfessed sin that is there. Call that out. Ask God for forgiveness. Thank God for the forgiveness that He has, has granted to you. Thank God for His incredible gift of salvation. Thank, thank God that Jesus chose suffering for you. Thank God that your record is holy and blameless and, and without a single fault. Thank God for your straight A's because of Jesus. And then at some point during these next two songs, make your way to the table, partake of the bread, partake of the cup. Won't you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your son, Jesus. In those raw moments in the garden, that Jesus chose your way, that Jesus chose obedience, that Jesus chose surrender for us. And over these next several moments, as we remember how you have loved us, loved us in our sin, how you have saved us from our sin, how you have come to us, that Jesus comes to us to be one of us, fully God and fully human, to have his body broken, his blood shed, that we may have life, that we may have abundant, grace-filled, full life now and for all eternity. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, amen.